Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. Welcome to this week's Democracy Sausage, coming to you from the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kenny. Have you ever attended one of those picnics where the wine laid on is seriously good and the food is, well, let's say, not your average barbecue fare? That's how I feel right now because my guests this week are gourmet analysts of the contemporary American condition, and they're both Australians. Dr. Ann Summers is a peerless author, journalist, columnist, and originator of magazines who lives in New York. Her most recent book, Unfettered and Alive, is a compelling memoir which tells not merely her own story, but also maps the major social and political developments in Australia since the 1970s. And Jonathan Swan is a gun political correspondent for Axios in Washington, D.C., where, among other things, he produces the influential Sneak Peek newsletter. Like Anne and myself, he's also a former press gallery journalist in Australia, having worked with me at the Sydney Morning Herald. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Mark. Good to be with you. And let's start with you. Is life coming back to some kind of normal in New York City where the coronavirus has wreaked so much death and, and economic destruction? No, uh, not at all. I mean, New York still hasn't um, complied with the uh, the benchmarks that need to be met before the economy is allowed to reopen. Um, the, the state says, I think it's eight benchmarks, um, and all to do with um, te- hospital capacity and number of tests and t- tracer capacity and so on. And New York is down on two of them, the most important one being uh, contact traces where two and a half thousand short of the number we need to have and it's not expected that we'll have those numbers or also the uh, excess hospital capacity which is required uh, before probably the first or more likely the second week of June. So it's only at that point that the New York City economy can start to reopen and uh, that will be uh, in a fairly minor way with uh, you know construction and, and things like that. So what's happening at the moment is that people are kind of venturing out into the streets a bit more, particularly as the weather's getting very nice and it's not as uh, it's a much bigger hardship to be cooped up in your apartment uh, when the sun's shining and it's uh, 80 degrees outside. And I'd say the biggest issue that we're facing at the moment, certainly where I live, is the kind of the, the mask war. And it's not like in uh, some states in the, in, the, in the, this country which where it's become a, a cultural war and you see people uh, screaming at people to take their masks off and calling them, you know, liberal trash and liberal scum and all this sort of thing. Here, 
it just seems to be more uh, an act of kind of ignorance or even arrogance on the part of a lot of particularly young people who just don't want to wear the masks, even though it is mandated here that we should wear them. It's extraordinary, this whole, uh, you know, as you say, this culture war element uh, of all of this uh, and the mask becoming a kind of uh, a marker for that or a divisive uh, marker for that uh, that argument. It's it's really amazing. Uh, partic- it's ridiculous. Well, particularly okay. when we think about it, like compare it to Australia where there's been a sense of um, this, you know, crisis unifying things, minimising divisions, uh, creating a, a greater sense of... Um, you know, as they say, we're all in this together now. You know, there have been some, there are some ways in which that's not the case. Of course, none of this is is absolute or perfect, but uh, it's really extraordinary. Just sticking with New York for a moment, though, what's really interesting is just how uneven the the spread of uh, of cases and of deaths has been in the U.S. I mean, uh, New York State, for example, on a per capita basis, uh, I read is 150 has 150 times greater death toll than, say, the state of Montana, uh, and 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 there are very many um, more deaths sort of clustered on the northeast side of the of the country. What's the explanation for that, or the understanding of it? Well, I mean, in the case of New York City, I mean, our our mayor um, wanted to act and closed down the city before the governor wanted. There was a bit of toing and froing between those two who have a, a traditional long-standing rivalry. Um, so we were a bit slow just to, to shut down. I mean, we did it ahead of some other states, but, but California got in first, and, and California, I think, and Washington State and Oregon all closed down a week earlier. If we'd closed down then, we would have averted a lot of this. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, you have to remember that the, the sheer density of population in a place like New York City means that once the virus is taken off, it's, you know, it, it, it moves very quickly. The subway system is, is old and dirty and disgusting and, and, uh, you know, it takes six million people a day ride it. So that's a major factor for, 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 um, for transmission and just the, the sheer density of, uh, of the workplaces, of restaurants, of bars, of all of the places where people congregate. So I think, you know, the, the governor and, and Cuomo and, um, Mayor de Blasio have done a good job since then, uh, but they had a huge um, mountain of, of infections to deal with. The other thing I'd say about New York and, and the uneven impact of the way in which the disease has hit the population of this city um, is that, you know, the rich people all basically left town. There's 400,000 people left the city and they tended to be from the Upper East Side, the Upper West Side and uh, some of them, I'm sorry to say, from where I live in Dumbo, which is in Brooklyn in New York. Uh, so anyone who had a country house in the Hamptons or upstate or Florida or Arizona or wherever uh, got out of Dodge and so they have been um, largely spared. And so this disease has really impacted on people who couldn't escape and also people who were um, emergency or essential workers who had no choice uh, but to go to work and often to go to work on the subway where they were likely to become infected. So it's been a really um, very grim uh, diagnosis of what the mechanics of this city are to see how the rich 
uh, escape tragedy and how the poor were stuck with it. Yes, I'd like to come to uh, a bit later to some of those sort of differential effects of both the, the virus, but particularly the response to it and what it's exposed uh, as we've seen the economy shut down. As we uh, record this, uh, the US has just passed that grim milestone, as it's known, um, 100,000 deaths, 100,047 100, deaths uh, uh, right at this point uh, as we're making this recording. Uh, and they're mostly clustered in New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Boston, Michigan, Pennsylvania. Um, and, and New York State has 29,000 of those, so not far off a third of those. Uh, what about uh, the capital, uh, Jonathan Swan? What about uh, Washington, D.C.? What's the um, situation there? So I think there have been something in the order of 500 deaths in Washington, D.C. Um, the surrounding area in Northern Virginia, Maryland, has been pretty bad, and, it, and, and it's been quite bad in the last month. But nothing on the scale, obviously, of of New York City or even uh, New Jersey, uh, Michigan, some of these other states. Um, I'm just talking specifically about Washington DC. Um, but we're starting to ease restrictions. I think Friday at oh, midnight Thursday, they're going to start to ease some of the restrictions because they've been on a, a decent trajectory in terms of new cases and. Um, the testing uh, has been, I won't say promising, but um, heading in the right direction. So it's, it hasn't been nearly as bad as, as New York. And it was pretty clear from the beginning, uh, from the beginning of this, that, that Donald Trump wasn't inclined to sort of square up to this pandemic threat in the way that uh, other leaders were, were shaping to do and, and, and have done, uh, even in Australia, for example. Um, and I guess that was that was obvious because you know beyond his his well-known misogyny and his well-known you know personal invective against individuals one of the most defining features of his presidency has been this sort of steadfast refusal to learn and grow on the job that you know he they, they, nothing about the way the trump administration ran suggested that it was that it was up to um really meeting this challenge head on um would would you agree with that Anne? Oh, where do we start with Donald Trump? Um, yes, I would agree with that. Uh, it's, I mean, I guess we've just watched, uh, I mean, it's obviously different for Jonathan sitting there, uh, you know, close to the scene, but there's just sitting, someone sitting in, in New York City watching. I mean, I used to watch his daily press briefings for a while, and in the end I just had to stop. I just couldn't bear um, these sort of Castro-like rants. Some of them went for two hours long. And the just the nonstop um, aggrandizement, um, the lies, uh, the, the the pushing of his mates, the uh, boosting of various businesses, the promoting of of shonky drugs or inappropriate drugs, and it's just the uh, the uh, whole circus uh, of what has transpired in the last two months has been um, horrifying because it's 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 life threatening. It's it's actually going to, has already led to. Uh, a, a spike in deaths that ought never to have happened. I think this has actually been quantified as to, you know, 35,000 or 65,000 or whatever uh, calculation you want to look at, uh, that, that deaths that were preventable um, have happened because of the leader of this country failed to act and, in fact, has been in denial, as he's still in denial. And he's saying, even today, I think, or certainly yesterday, that 100,000 deaths is not a problem because it should have, you know, we could have had 2 million deaths and so 100,000 is nothing. We should be grateful. 
Uh, so it's, it's, I mean, I find the, uh, him contemptuous, but I also find him terrifying. Jonathan? There were two reasons initially why he was unwilling to uh, listen to his advisors. Number one was he has this obsession with the stock market. It's probably the singular, I remember covering, I've been covering him since 2015 and I remember covering him on the campaign and going to rallies. And when you talk to Trump in that period, he was obsessed with the polls, right? And it was when he was polling particularly well, he was in the primary. It was something he could boast. He always needs a metric with which he can say, this is how good I am. This is the number that that stipulates exactly how amazing I am. And when the polls stopped being good, he turned to the stock market and the Dow became his poll and he was obsessed with it. And it colored so much of his thinking. Uh, it colored the way he thought about trade deals. It colored the way he thought about anything. And the best way to think about Trump is, and I'm not, it's not an original observation, but it really is how he operates. He's a day trader. He doesn't think in the long term. He thinks about what he needs to do to get through the next minute, hour, news cycle. What can I do and say right now to get instant gratification? And of course, when people started to talk about this virus in late January, it was something that only in his mind posed one thing, which was this could really screw up my beautiful economy and my beautiful stock market if people get overly spooked about it. He genuinely didn't think it was going to come here. And in his mind, you know, putting in some travel restrictions was was going to sort of hermetically seal off America. There was a period where he didn't want to let people in off one of these cruise ships because it would add to the numbers of people that were infected. And so for the longest period of time, mostly through February and early March, that was the mindset. What can we do? And, and then you had advisors going out saying, we've got this thing contained, et cetera, et cetera. And then there was this moment in uh, probably around March 11th when it dawned on him that this was out of his control, that this was not something that he could tweet away. This was not something that he could, you know, describe as fake news or use his usual toolbox. And that's been the greatest frustration for him because, frankly, there's been so many times in this presidency where commentators have said this is the mortal blow or this will undo him, whether it be the, the threat of his financial records coming out with Deutsche Bank or the Mueller investigation and Russia or this is the final shoe to drop. And he's actually constitutionally pretty well set up to manage that kind of uh, assault. But when it's something where you actually have to rely on the government, which to a large extent he's gutted, um, experts, uh, bureaucrats, uh, the scientific community, uh, calm, measured, consistent public communication, this is not what Donald Trump does. So right now, for example, you have this situation where he has completely moved on from the public health messaging, explicitly so. He doesn't want to be out there talking about statistics or, you know, the need for social distancing. He is trying now to position himself as in this election, the candidate who's going to reopen your economy, who's going to bring back the glory days of the economy. 
you know, he's out there not wearing a mask. He loves the visual contrast of him being mask free and Joe Biden wearing a mask. And that's what he's setting up for the fall. He's trying to defy the reality of the current polling, which is that people are still very concerned about this virus. They're worried about going back out to their normal lives. And he is trying to kind of will it to be uh, that people will kind of end up where he's at. It's a really uh, a great description, I think, that uh, that idea of him as a day trader and seeing it in those very sort of tactical terms all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, to what extent do you think it's all, his performance throughout this is, is also a function of that mindset going in? That is, once he'd conceded um, the, the the ability to take take the initiative once he'd let this thing get out of control through his own inaction and and sort of uh, denial of it, he was locked onto that path. And we know politicians, not just Trump, most politicians we know, uh, aren't big on um, admitting they're wrong, admitting they've made a wrong step. So he's kind of been locked into this. Um, this path of trying to, uh, I guess, negotiate it, mediate it in other ways, blaming it on China and 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 failures of other individuals and politicization and all these sorts of things. The the frustrating um, part of it as a reporter is some of his critiques um, have actually a lot of uh, basis to them. So the China critique. I mean, I interviewed the Chinese ambassador to the US for our HBO show recently. I mean, they have a lot to answer for. But Trump, of course, takes it to this other level. And you have, you know, members of his administration getting out over their skis with the statements they're making, the level of certainty that they were applying to this theory that the virus came out of a lab in Wuhan. So they always take it further. Um, but look, Trump Trump was never going to handle this any way other than what he has had. <laughs> like, like it was never going to be any other way. He was never going to be sticking to a consistent message or urging caution, urging social distancing, urging masks. The mask thing is really interesting. I mean, Trump has very, uh, and this is not, again, it's not my opinion. This is described to me by people who are in there with him, you know, helping him set up for some of his interviews and his shots. He has very particular ideas about, what a president should look like. And he used to used to go on and on about how he would never be like Jimmy Carter and be photographed carrying his own luggage as a president. That was something he was sort of this idea of <laughs> this president as, you know, lowered, as a lowered figure, as sort of one of um, the ordinary folks. He likes to kind of be elevated and set apart. And he thinks one thing he thinks obsessively about is the pageantry and stagecraft of the presidency. And so people were saying, oh, the mask thing, he's doing it, for, you know, the polling and tactics. It's complete nonsense. I, I know f- from my own reporting that he was instinctively against the idea of himself wearing masks from the outset. And it was pure vanity and, you know, his own conception of the image of the presidency. So people try and overlay way too many theories of Trump and you know, tactics and strategy. And mostly it's just a guy operating on pure instinct, uh, minute to minute, hour to hour, uh, doing whatever he wants with pure abandon, knowing that he has an entire political party besides one lonely senator, Mitt Romney, completely under his thumb. Uh, He acts with entire knowledge, safe in the knowledge that no one can touch him in his own party, and that defines everything he does. Uh, Do you have a thought on that, Anne? 
Well, one of the things that I find um, extraordinary and a question I have not been able to answer since I've been living in this country um, and since Trump has been president is how he has been able to capture the Republican Party in the way that Jonathan has described and why it is that even when it um, increasingly looks against the self-interest, i.e. the survival of, of certain senators and possibly the administration, uh, they continue to uh, cover for him, defend him, uh, defend him in, 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 on, on, on issues and on policies that are, you know, absurd often. And it's just something I simply do not understand how he's been able to, to, to achieve that, how nobody, um, nobody tries to stop him. Well, can I offer a few thoughts? Um, sure. Yeah. So um, when, you, when you talk to these Republican senators who really don't like Trump, many of them, on a personal level, his character, uh, they, they do not think so, – you know, I shouldn't say many of them – there's at least a dozen that I can think of off the top of my head in the Republican Senate that I have talked to in a confidential capacity who've who've expressed that view to me. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. In their in terms of their political survival, they they're not going to persuade. In, there's very few persuadable voters at this point. It's really just mobilizing your base, mobilizing your voters, and the polls are blatantly clear. Republican voters really like Trump. They overwhelmingly like Trump. They like Trump more than Republican voters liked George Bush after 9-11 in some polls. And when you go to, I mean, I've been to so many Trump rallies, I don't even know where to begin, but it is like, I, I don't know if you've been to one, but it's like the only thing to describe it to is almost a religious event. The, the devotion and the intensity of his support is like nothing I've ever seen in politics. These people just, they ride or die for Trump. And it's a combination of a religious event, uh, sort of mega church type of vibe com combined with a kind of almost like a rock concert. They know all the lyrics. All he needs to do is say Hillary Clinton and they'll start spontaneously chanting, lock her up. The, the intensity and the bonding of his supporters. And, you know, it was interesting. I was talking to uh, someone who runs one of the big outside groups uh, for Republican Party. Uh, I shouldn't say runs, a senior person at one of these outside groups. And they were talking to some activists in, in one of the key states. And it was really interesting. So this is North Carolina. Tom Tillis is vulnerable there in the Senate. And some of these Republican activists were basically saying he hasn't been sufficiently loyal to Trump. I mean, this is a guy who has really uh, sucked up to Trump almost unendingly in his time in the Senate, but they, this, this activist had remembered a critical thing that he said about Trump in an opinion piece 18 months ago about the president, you know, declaring a national emergency and whatever. This is how closely the base is following it and how this is the kind of feedback when these senators go home. It's not oh, why can't you, you, you be more you know, of a check and balance against the president? What they're hearing consistently is, why did you not stand with Trump you know, when he said that Joe Scarborough, the cable news host, murdered um, you know, the, the person in his office, this conspiracy theory? You know, that's the message they'll get back home. Where were you when, when Trump was being persecuted over this? And 
So you respond to the pressures from your own constituents. I mean, it's, it's really... But, but Jonathan, at the same time, yeah. I mean, the, the, the polling overall uh, suggests that, uh, no, that this is not working. It's not working for a majority of people. But 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 it, but if you just look at what, what I'm saying is what I'm saying is for these Republicans, um, they're responding to their own voters. I mean, I understand. Yeah. I understand that. But I mean, that, that's, isn't that aren't they on a suicide mission? Well, they're on a suicide mission if they cross him, because in their minds, they're never going to win over the Democrats, the Democratic voters, and the Independents and the swing voters. They'll they might win a few Independent swing voters in the middle, but they're going to lose their base. So, like, take, I'll, I'll give you an example. Susan Collins, right? She's running in Maine, okay? One of the m- more vulnerable senators. She tries to walk this line. She she sometimes criticizes Trump, but when it really matters on the big votes, like confirming Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court, she sticks with mm-hmm. Trump because she knows if she really crosses him in a big and public way, they're not going to turn up, the base isn't going to turn up and vote for her, and there just simply aren't enough swing independent voters to make up for the base not showing up. So they're making these awful political calculations. This is really fascinating. So it's almost like the strength of his position, the extremeness or extremity of his political persona is such that even staying silent is seen as not being as making a decision in itself, uh, not being sufficiently muscular in your support if you're in the the GOP. And so um, that leaves you vulnerable to those sorts of criticisms. And as you say, uh, the the calculation you have to make if you're uh, up for election is, um, you know, will will my base stick with me? Because I'm not going to get – our president is so controversial that I'm not going to get – um, swing voters and, and, and Democrats who might be thinking, oh, look, you know, my local representative is actually pretty moderate, therefore I'm, I'm going to support him or her. That just doesn't happen because Trump has so successfully polarised the electorate and turned the GOP almost into a sort of a cult um, and that's how the base is operating. It was already very polarised, um, but Trump has just Again, it's it's hard to explain the intensity without just seeing it yourself, um, and it, I really have never seen anything like it. it it's this just utter devotion to him uh, and a, a, an alertness, an, an absolute alertness to any sign of disloyalty or flirtation with the other side. Let's take a quick break there and uh, come back in just a moment. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. 
Welcome back. Now, Ann Summers, why do you think Trump has refused in this crisis? I mean, we've talked a bit about uh, the, the approach he's taken to it, the sort of denial that he took to it in the beginning, and he's, he's stuck to that. But looking at the issue of grief itself at the, at the death toll, um, is it his culpability that, uh, that is at play here in this? What is the reason, as, as you understand it, that, that Donald Trump hasn't risen to the, the place that presidents generally uh, go at times of national mourning and crisis? Um, you know, uh, people talk about uh, Barack Obama singing Amazing Grace after the, the Charleston shootings. Um, they talk about George W. Bush at Ground Zero speaking to uh, first responders uh, through a loud hailer. Um, Trump, on the other hand, makes very little, very, very infrequent references to the death toll uh, and uh, has done almost nothing in that space. Is it, his, is it simply his culpability or is he just only about the positive? Well, I think as Jonathan has explained, I mean, he's not that type of president. I mean, he's not a president. He's, he's a, a cult leader. He's a, a demagogue. He's a... Uh, you know, there's all all the words that one could uh, could could summons up to describe the kind of leader that we don't normally associate, or we've never had to associate in the past with uh, the presidency of the United States. And I think the question, uh, you know, we're five months out from the election. The question going forward is: uh, Are enough Americans living in the right places in the right states uh, going to um, endorse this uh, this type of presidency? Or, or is he going to be chucked out? I mean, that's the only question in the United States at the moment, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, you know, I guess you know, with the polls, in, uh, there's there's all sorts of polls that you can look at. There's electoral college uh, pathway maps that you can look at that all show uh, the Democrats uh, having a likely narrow win or a likely big win. Uh, but whether or not that is actually going to happen. Um, you know, we don't know. We just simply don't know what's going to happen, uh, uh, as far as I can tell, until the votes come in. Uh, if it's a fair election, if there's no interference, um, if there's uh, people are allowed to vote, uh, if we don't have a, a situation as we saw in Wisconsin recently, uh, then uh, I think Trump has got a very tough uh, battle ahead of him, and I certainly hope that he loses. Uh, but uh, if we know that he's not going to be... Um, um, sanguine about accepting results he doesn't like. We know that he's a dirty fighter, and we know he has a lot of uh, a lot of help uh, from all sorts of nefarious sources, including likely some foreign uh, government ones. So uh, I don't know what Jonathan thinks about this, but at the moment I'd say it's uh, it's going to be a very very tough few months. What do you think about it, Jonathan? Do you, do you think that uh, he, he can't do the mourner-in-chief thing because that legitimises the criticism about his government's failure or is it just that he yeah. doesn't have empathy? Yeah. Yeah, no, no well, um, it's mostly because if he t the extent to which he dwells on, you know, if he was to do an event tomorrow where he stood up and, you know, read out the names of, a number of people who died and, and really drew a line under this, it would be an acknowledgement of failure and um, and he's not going to do that. But as for the election, uh, look, it's <laughs> people often talk about the national polls. I mean, this, I, still it's, you know, Biden's 10 points ahead in the national polls. It is still quite conceivable that Biden 
does even better than Hillary Clinton did um, in terms of the national vote and beats Trump by, who knows, 2 million, 3 million votes overall, it's still possible that he loses the Electoral College. And it's really, I mean, the only states that I'm really paying attention to are Florida, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Arizona. And Arizona? Yeah, Arizona. Arizona. Is that why he, is that um, one of the reasons he's going North so Carolina. hard after, sorry, uh, Jonathan, is that one of the reasons yeah. he's going so hard after this guy he refers to as Psycho Joe Scarborough? He's from Florida, is he not? No, that's just a pure um, petty grievance with a cable news host. There's absolutely no strategic uh, thought or value in that. But said, that, that um, said cable news host is a former GOP congressman, isn't yes. he? <laughs> yes, but he's become, you know, one of Trump's biggest critics on TV. I mean, he calls Trump mentally ill almost every day. I mean, so so it's not really right. – he, he's not really a Republican. And I think he even left the Republican Party, renounced his membership. So um, that's – no, that's just a, a bit of a – a sideshow, but um, he's looking very weak in Michigan right now, and um, his team do not feel particularly good about Michigan. Um, Arizona is actually quite problematic for them. It's very, very tight mm. in Arizona, and obviously there's a pretty um, solid Hispanic vote there, so Democrats are running really hard at Arizona. But in terms of the things that the Trump campaign's worried about, it's not even close. The number one thing they're concerned about and there's nothing even close, is his weakness among seniors. He has significant... Mm -hmm. Florida, Florida. In Florida, but also nationally. He has significant slippage among seniors, and Joe Biden is significantly outperforming Hillary Clinton um, among elderly Americans. And that is a huge problem because that is Trump's base. And that's what they're worried about. And what they're worried about is, look... The Trump campaign itself, mechanically, is very good. It's a very strong campaign. It's a far better campaign than the Biden campaign. If you're just talking about online campaigning, online fundraising, the mechanics of you know digital campaigning, modern campaigning, you'd expect that. They've got a four-year head start. But it's a really, really strong campaign. But the thing that they're worried about is that it might not matter. Biden won Super Tuesday, cleaned up without having an operation in any of these states. It was just pure media momentum and people coming out and saying, you know what, he's all right, he's better than Bernie, let's turn up and vote for him. A really strong African-American vote, really strong support among seniors, among moderates. And the concern I'm hearing a lot from people in Trump's orbit now is that that, yeah, okay, we might have a tactical advantage or a mechanical advantage on the campaign side, but it might not end up mattering because there might be something deeper, more fundamental that's a problem, and that's what the senior thing is. That That's the concern there. They, they can't put their finger on it, why it is that he's had this slippage in this age group. It's, it's, it sets up a really fascinating contest in, uh, in terms of rewriting the normal political rules because uh, what candidates uh, in, in democratic elections worry about always is, is you know, the risk factor, the, the, the possibility of a mistake, of doing something wrong, of going too far with a particular piece of, of rhetoric or allegation. But this doesn't seem to be... In the risk equation about Trump, he, he does that as a matter of standard practice. 
and as we were discussing before, his base just seems to get more deeply committed to him as a result of that. The more partisan he is, the more reason they feel that they need to strongly, you know, that, that is the more he's resented and hated by the, by the, by the centre and the left, then the more he's loved by, by the right, it almost feels like. So, except, except, Mark, you've got, you've got to remember that you know, his base uh, is peeling off. You know, Jonathan's mentioned the seniors. I mean, the seniors, there is interestingly a very big gender gap amongst the seniors. I mean, many more women aged over 65 um, have gone off Trump than men. So the net effect, I think, is minus 10 amongst seniors, but amongst women it's minus 22. There are similar things that have happened with uh, Republican college-educated white women, uh, and you're even seeing it uh, currently amongst uh, evangelicals and some Catholics who all were very, very strong parts of Trump's base who are now, uh, for various reasons, including their um, concern about the way in which the coronavirus is being handled in this country, are uh, peeling off. And so that I'm not saying the base is disappearing, but it's eroding in certain key sectors uh, that are uh, what once would have been critical to his re-election. Yeah, well, that, that's a very interesting point. Uh, has he actually grown the base? Because obviously the result in 2016 was a surprise to pretty well everyone, even the Trump campaign indeed. Uh, and, uh, you know, so, so it's one of those kind of, um, you know, depends how you want to put it, but it was a kind of a, an accident in a sense. No one knew the votes were going to fall in such a way that they would lead to the, the college outcome that we got. Um, this time around, has, 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 does Trump have a bigger slice of the electorate than he used to have or just a more committed slice uh, version of what he had in 2016? I think it's sort of the wrong question. What the campaign is doing is it's looking at these states, these very small number of states, and they're trying to locate people who, who would be supportive of Donald Trump and make sure that they turn out in November. They are systematically pouring through the voter rolls in Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, Arizona, North Carolina, Iowa, etc. And they are just finding people who are Trump curious or Trump supportive and making sure they turn out. And so when you say, has he grown the base? Yeah, he probably has to the extent that they've made incremental gains of voters. They've located, found, built an online relationship and maybe a verbal phone relationship with voters. And they are going to use all of their resources to make sure they show up um, in in November. Has he grown a broader constituency across the country and won over you know, independent stuff. Heck no. Heck no. Of course he hasn't. But so but again, it's the wrong it's the wrong question. But has he has he animated his opposition at an even greater rate than he's animated people to support him? Well, we don't know yet. I mean, the only test case we've had of that is that at a decent enough scale is the midterm elections in 2018, and he wasn't on the ballot. And that test case was very bad for Republicans. They lost the House, right? So you could pick that and say, there you go, Democrats are more fired up than Republicans are in favour of Trump. I'm sceptical of that because Trump wasn't on the ballot and, um, you know, incumbent presidents usually do pretty badly in midterm elections. So we'll find out. I don't think we know the answer to that question. And and I'll just tell you that 
the Biden campaign are not complacent about this at all. They know how motivated Trump's base is and they know how, how there is this possibility as an incumbent president with all the advantages that he has to pull it off again, even though the polls right now would have you believe that Biden um, would take this out. Well, speaking of Biden, has he kind of gone missing uh, through this corona affair? I mean, he's uh, definitely not had the kind of profile that the president have, has, which you would expect, but um, he's uh, he's pretty much stayed uh, under wraps or, or under a mask, as, uh, as Trump would like to say. What do you think, Anne? Um, well, yes, he's been in his basement in Delaware and make popping up occasionally, but I don't really think it matters. I mean, uh, it's not affecting his uh, uh, his polling. It's not affecting his uh, ratings amongst the people he needs. Um, the question I think the Democrats have got to address is 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 what kind of convention they're going to have. I mean, they're they're talking about a I think a largely virtual convention, not the conventional. Uh, big crowds and bells and whistles, which is what Trump's still trying to, to have, apparently. Um, their question will be, what happens to the campaign after the convention and in the final couple of months before polling day? And, um, you know, I just don't know the answer to that. Um, but it, it, it may not matter because if, if the people who don't are put off by Trump, um, they're going to vote against him and it doesn't really matter what Biden does. Let's talk about uh, federal-state relations. Uh, in Australia, this uh, COVID crisis has ushered in uh, a new era of cooperation. We've seen the National Cabinet operating. We've seen personal relationships forged between the Prime Minister and, and some of the Premiers, even even across the political divide. Uh, and we're, we're seeing talk of that National Cabinet rolling forward past the crisis in the recovery phase. Uh, there's talk about industrial relations reform almost you know a, you know sort of harking back to the accord with some of the consensual mechanisms and so forth we'll see how much of this actually materializes of course it's very early days but it's been such a dramatically different uh, atmosphere in the US is this simply down to Trump or is it simply down to uh, the fact that there's an election looming uh, or or is there some other reason why uh, the federal government just can't operate with the states uh, in the way that um, the crisis demands? A lot of it is, is it's just welcome to America. You know, like it really is a country that is, that is this way by design. The, 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 Ungovernable. Yeah, it really is. And, and the, you know, I remember in 2016 when they were talking about election security, they're saying one of the blessings that, you know, that, that, makes it very hard for there to be a, a coherent physical attack as opposed to, you know, spreading disinformation and hacking, whatever, is because it's so decentralised and states, so much power is uh, is given to the states. So it's it's this way by design, but, but it's doubly by design because you have, um, even though Trump himself doesn't really have any personal ideology, he, he is a Republican and he's a figurehead of a party that, is is defined by an idea that you you want to get power as far away from Washington as possible and to reduce the size of the federal government uh, is an article of faith. So, I mean, again, it, it, this is by design. This is not some kind of aberration or hiccup. It's the way that, uh, that they intend it to be, is, is for the federal government not to be the focal point. Um, but you see what happens when there's a disaster that requires the federal government 
Um, I mean, you saw this under George W. Bush um, when Katrina hit. You saw the failures of FEMA and, and the federal government mobilizing, uh, and you're seeing it again now in, in different ways. A question for both of you uh, on that. Uh, do, do you learn something new about your own country uh, when you look at this sort of by contrast? To, I mean, you're making some very interesting observations there, Jonathan, about, uh, about the way the US works or, or, or sort of defiantly doesn't work. Does it, does it sort of teach you new things, new perspective about how Australia does or can? Well, I guess um, I, it has been heartening to watch Australia handle the, uh, the COVID crisis um, certainly better than many other countries. And it's been, uh, it was amazing to see Scott Morrison's performance um, change so drastically from his handling of the bushfires earlier this year. Uh, so that was very heartening. I mean, it, it just, it's just, it's a reminder, I guess, that Australia, um, Australians basically like the state. We expect the state, and you know, it's completely different from the United States. Uh, Australians expect the government to be there to help them. And if, when it's not there, as it wasn't during the bushfires, they get very, very upset. Uh, Americans don't want the government to help them by and large. So there's a, the, the systems are so different that they're, they're scarcely comparable. I mean, all we can say really is that Australia has done very well with the exception of, of the way they handled that that cruise ship, letting the people in from that. If, if that hadn't happened, you know, the, the 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 infection rate might be even lower than it is. It's already very, very low. But the other thing I'd just say about the states is that the federal government has been um, pretty disastrous and the way in which Trump has tried to use um, the supply of, of medical equipment and so on during the crisis uh, for political ends by sending, you know, masks and ventilators and what have you to Republican states, whether they wanted them or not, and depriving uh, places like New York until Cuomo kicked up a huge fuss about it. I mean, that was um, that was pretty disgusting. But against that, you've seen some very interesting alliances of governors forming uh, in this country. There's been um, the northwestern, northeastern. Um, alliance of governors uh, over in, um, in 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 this part of the world, where I think it's seven states led by Cuomo, including New Jersey, Connecticut, Delaware, Rhode Island, uh, Massachusetts, um, Pennsylvania, uh, and they're not all Republicans. They're, they're, it's a bipartisan alliance of states based on purchasing power and the ability to sort of work as a group economy. And uh, it'll be interesting to see whether or not that continues to have any kind of um, traction after the virus, um, you know, after after this crisis um, has left us, if ever it does. What about the impact on women, Anne? The downturn has exposed vulnerability and disadvantage of women in the workforce, gender segregation, many occupations, uh, failure to properly value uh, really what we all regard now as essential work, essential services. Uh, are these... Strong elements of the the debate in the US. Um, I'm not, not. I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not aware of it. Not, they're not really strong um, elements of the debate in Australia, at least not the gender aspect. But uh, I wondered whether it was coming up. Um, the, the race I division. So. Does I mean, I think that I think um, you know race uh, is probably the predominant issue um, in in American politics and American society. It dominates everything. And uh, um, for very good reason, of course, we had a you know shocking murder of a man by the police just yesterday in Minnesota. Um, so I think the the impact of the coronavirus, well, first of all, it's had a greater impact on men than on women, which is something which is 
I don't know if we really understand the reasons for that, but that's been fairly consistent, I think, across all age groups and all socioeconomic groups, that, that, that men are more susceptible to it than women. Um, that when the one thing we have observed, of course, is that the majority of, of healthcare workers, particularly the nursing staff and hospital uh, cleaning staff, are women, and so it is, has perhaps highlighted the uh, essential uh, nature of that work, which has, was underappreciated before, but whether or not we continue to value it and appreciate it after this current crisis, um, I wouldn't hold my breath. Um, so I think the, um, the, the lessons from this, uh, well, I guess we have to ask, will there be any long-term lessons learned from this? And uh, knowing America's track record on these things, I would say unlikely. Mm. Is there the same debate, Jonathan, uh, as is happening in Australia? And in this sense, it is quite a, a strong uh, discussion point uh, in, in uh, amongst governments and in the commentariat about economic and social reform, a kind of perestroika forced by the uh, forced by the, the, the shutdown and the chance to rethink a number of the ways that we do things. So we see uh, debates about industrial relations law, we see debates about taxation, education, division of uh, responsibilities between the Commonwealth and the states. Is there that kind of um, macro debate environment in the US at the moment or is it just too partisan? Yeah, debate might be the wrong word for it. There's certainly a hunger, a very intense hunger on the left to not let the crisis go to waste and to use it as an opportunity to push for fundamental reforms that would be probably politically inconceivable in uh, in normal times. And I think there's probably been a false hope that's uh, fostered uh, on the left because, you know, you are seeing these enormous packages get passed through Congress at, at light speed, you know, the last one, well, first one, sorry, $2.2 trillion, you know, then, you know, plus it up by $500 billion or whatever for the small businesses. But I think, I think it's mistaken optimism because Republicans are very united in not wanting there to be huge structural changes brought about as a result of COVID. So, yes, they were willing to uh, green lights, cash payments, which don't make any structural change, right? Sending people checks for $1,200 doesn't fundamentally change anything. Um, they're willing to even put in place a, you know, a temporary boost to unemployment benefits. But I'll tell you what, that's an absolute red line for Republicans in the next bill, um, and so the extent to which Republicans want to uh, push reforms in the next bill, it's reforms that will protect businesses. So one of their red lines is liability protection to, to make it much harder, if not impossible, for people to employees to sue their employers if they get sick after going back to, the, to work. So I don't see any uh, space for the kind of radical fundamental compromise uh, that would be required. Um, the only area I think that where something big could happen is infrastructure. And that's only because Trump himself is personally predisposed towards it. But even then, I'm very skeptical because Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, is trying to pour cold water over the idea. So even a big boondoggle, expensive rebuild our bridges bill, which Trump would love to do, I just don't see that happening. Um, as long as Mitch McConnell's in charge of the Senate. And just quickly from both of you uh, on China, are we 
on the edge of a new Cold War in your estimation? I can go first on that. Um, yes, <laughs> in short. Um, things. The China thing is really interesting because Trump, Trump has a, a, a White House and an administration that is filled with China hawks, but he himself has always been quite ambivalent. So he has this long record of rhetorical bashing of China. That's all fine. We all know that. But since he's been president, he's actually been quite reluctant to go full Steve Bannon on China. And it's largely because he's wanted to keep this personal relationship with Xi Jinping and he wanted to do trade deals and, you know, to some extent get along. But something, two things have happened recently. One is um, he always had his hawks, right, in the administration. So his national security Council is dominated by China hawks. Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, is an ultra China hawk. He his team is filled with China hawks. Uh, Peter Navarro, his trade advisor, ultra China hawk. But there's always been sort of moderating balance. Um, his Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin and Larry Kudlow are much more moderate on China. But what's happened recently is his political team. And by that, I mean his campaign manager, Brad Pascal, his pollster, John McLaughlin, they've become China hawks, not because they've dived deep into the policy, but because they've looked at the polls. And what's happened is they have seized upon this as a really big campaign issue. And they see it as one of their key ways to hurt Joe Biden, to paint him as being weak on China. So you've had this merging of his political team with his national security team and there's now no disagreement, really, that what you have to do is beat the hell out of China, whether he talks to his political advisors or his national security advisors. And so um, that coupled with COVID and his real anger at what China did and also his political opportunism at blaming somebody else, I think this is heading in a it's frankly heading inevitably towards confrontation of different sorts. I don't know what exactly that's going to look like, but uh, I think it's going to get worse and worse and worse uh, this election season. And I actually don't know how to predict what's going to happen next, but I, I, I really, really don't see a way out of this clash right now. I think it's heading in a very, very dangerous direction. And? Uh, well, there's not really a lot I can add to that, Mark, except to say um, it's going to be a very um, interesting challenge for Australia. Yes, that's, that's uh, very, uh, very true indeed. Uh, it's been a, a problem for Australia right through. And, of course, the relationship between Beijing and Canberra probably hasn't been at a lower point in recent decades. So... Um, there's uh, if if there's still some way to go before we get to the bottom of it um, in terms of the uh, the cooling of the relationship, then it, you're right. It's going to be very difficult for Australia, particularly if uh, if our great uh, great ally, the US, is um, uh, you know is uh, planning on ratcheting up the rhetoric even further. Look, it's been absolutely terrific. I expected this to be a brilliant conversation, and it's lived up to that. So thanks very much to Jonathan Swan and Dr. Ann Summers. Uh, it's been brilliant having you on board. Next week, we're going to take a closer look at a closer neighbour, that being Jacinda Ardern's New Zealand, which is also uh, has, a, has an election on the horizon. And uh, Ardern, of course, has uh, been widely recognised around the globe for the, uh, the very front-footed way that her government has responded to this crisis. We'll be taking a look at that. 
Thanks for joining us on Democracy Sausage and see you again early next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.